15 through 20 just for uh, some context and as an act of worship to the Lord. Uh, Colossians 1, 15 uh, through 17. It's here this evening that we will be observing Christ as the preeminent Lord of creation. Christ as the preeminent Lord of creation. Now, to the discerning uh, member this evening, uh, you'll look in your bulletin and say, that doesn't exactly match up uh, to the title in there. Uh, well, I got to tell you, uh, originally, um, I was planning on doing all of the verses here, 15 uh, through 20. I planned on covering the entirety of those verses in which uh, tonight's sermon would have been simply the first point of two. Um, and as I studied and as I sat on the text and, and more good stuff came from the text, so to speak, uh, I realized that I had uh, one of two options, uh, either a 45-minute sermon or two properly timed sermons. Uh, and, you know, I, I just didn't want to uh, get y'all too excited. I know how much y'all love a good 45-minute, 50-minute sermon. So, a uh, 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 better decision prevailed at the advice of my bride um, to make this a separate sermon. And so y'all can thank her next time you see her. Uh, so we'll be looking this evening at Colossians 1, 15 through 17, um, as Christ the preeminent uh, Lord of creation. Uh, what Paul is going to do for us here, and this isn't to say that Jesus hasn't obviously been the focus of, of everything we've covered in Colossians, but Paul here, in a new and, and stronger and more firm way, moves the attention wholly and entirely to Jesus. This, this is a text here that is Jesus-obsessed. Uh, remember, if you would, that the church at Colossae, as we've already covered, uh, had had some false teachers who had crept in with some errors in their teaching and heresy. Uh, one of those errors that they were promoting uh, was the notion that while Jesus was special, he wasn't unique. Uh, that while he was important, he was not sufficient. Uh, that while he might have been sent by God as a good teacher, a good prophet, a good leader, and maybe even be a God himself, uh, some of these men, some of these false teachers would have been arguing that he was not the one true only creator God himself. And, and that makes a lot of difference. And they were teaching that he was one of many spiritual beings sent by God to help us, a, a rung on a ladder, so to speak, uh, but that we could and should keep climbing up that ladder to the next best thing, uh, to reach fulfillment. Remember, that was one of their buzzwords. And Paul's going to pick up on that and use that uh, for Christ's advantage throughout this book, that idea of fulfillment, of fullness. We're not missing out on anything, and that's the point that Paul is going to make tonight. And last time, and the time before that, when we gathered, uh, we were in one of Paul's prayers here in the earlier verses of chapter 1. We broke that up into two parts uh, where we saw that Paul prayed some really good things for the church at Colossae and that we should be praying for ourselves. Uh, he prayed that we would be filled with knowledge, that we would be filled with a, a true and real power, and that we would be filled with thanksgiving. Uh, specifically, as we looked at in the last uh, lesson, a, a thanksgiving for the salvation that Christ has accomplished for us, that he has qualified you, that he has transferred you, and that he has redeemed you. And so already the focus has been on Christ, but he's going to really bring it home this evening. And all of this begs a question that it seems that Paul, uh, doing what Paul does best throughout his writings under divine inspiration, it, it seems to beg a question that Paul foresaw that some might ask. And that is, what makes Jesus so special 
and so unique and so powerful that he can accomplish all of that. You know, in other faith systems, say the Greek pantheon of that day, you had a different God for everything. You had a God that is who you prayed to if you were on the water. You had a God that you prayed to when you were hunting. You had a God that you prayed to that was different if the sun was out versus if the moon was out. And so in that context, what makes Jesus so special and so unique and so powerful that he can and has done all of it? Our passage this evening is essentially Paul's answer to that. We're told that Jesus is able to save us, that he's able to qualify you, transfer you, and redeem you who were dead in your trespasses and sins because he is preeminent. He is preeminent. He is first. He is the supreme. He is the greatest. As the kids these days say, he's the goat. He's the greatest of all time. There is no above him. There is no being which is greater than him that exists, and there never will be. He is above all things. He is the head. He is the beginning. He is, as Paul says in our text, preeminent. And this isn't just a, a side note. This isn't a detour that Paul is taking, and he'll get back to his main point. This is the main point. Uh, if this were an essay for a class, this is his thesis statement, that Christ is first. He is preeminent. Paul tells us here to look no further than Christ. He is everything. He is everything that you and I will ever need and all that we should desire. All is a, there's a a band named Shane and Shane that got famous for a song called Yearning. He is all that we should yearn for. All that we should long for. You and I have no need to look elsewhere for fulfillment or for satisfaction or for completion. It's not Jesus plus. It's not Christ and. It's Christ period. This Christ, this Jesus needs no aid. He needs no supplementation or help from anything else. Not from our traditions. Not from our superstitions. Not from your speculations or philosophies. This Jesus that we worship, this Jesus that Paul writes of this evening is preeminent. He is supreme. He is all that we need with a period. And so Paul here, I hope we notice this, that Paul is so moved, that he is so excited about this, that even as he writes it, he doesn't just do so in a normal sense. Paul doesn't write this just as a theological treatise. He writes it as a hymn. This text here that we have in Colossians 1, 15-20 is arguably one of the oldest hymns of the church. It's poetry. It's written in poetic form. You see the truth of Jesus Christ and His supremacy in everything, in creation, and as we'll see the next time we meet for Colossians, in redemption. It's a truth that should move beyond our minds. It's not supposed to just stay in headspace. This truth that Christ is preeminent and supreme is so wonderful, so marvelous, so beautiful that it should move us to sing. Our theology, especially our Christology, our understandings of Christ and His life and His accomplishments, it should go beyond just our minds and our heads and our brains and mere facts, and they should permeate down to our hearts and our souls. So much so that we, as the apostles themselves said, can't help but to speak, or really can't help but to sing and to marvel at all that Christ has done in praise and worship. And so that's what we have here this evening. 
It's Paul not just enhancing our understanding, not just expanding our theological information, but hopefully lighting a fire in our hearts that will move us even to song and praise and worship. This hymn here has two stanzas. The the first is where we're going to focus our attention uh, this evening, verses 15 through 17, and the second stanza, verses 18 through 20. And what Paul does for us here, it's very logical. The, the, The main idea here is Christ is first. He is preeminent. Paul takes the first stanza of worship in this hymn to focus on Christ as the preeminent Lord of creation. That's where we're going to spend our time this evening. And the next time we'll gather, we'll look at the second stanza as Christ is preeminent over redemption. And so we'll dig into God's word, but before we do that, can we pray just one more time? Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time that we have. We thank you for this Sabbath day. I thank you for my brothers and sisters who who faithfully gather week after week, who come here. Uh, Lord, people could be doing different things. People could be a number of different places, and in this day and age, that's more the norm than being here. Uh, Father, I thank you for each of my brothers and sisters who, who recognize, recognize the benefit and the gift and the means of grace that this Sabbath day and corporate worship is. Father, I pray as we gather now to hear your word proclaimed. Father, I pray that you would simply put, get me out of the way, that you would... Help me to be a mouthpiece for you, Lord, that I would speak your word in truth and in fullness and that your body here gathered, including myself and all of my brothers and sisters, would be edified, that they would benefit, that they would be challenged and be sanctified by the word of God as it is proclaimed this evening. All to your glory, all to the praise of Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Colossians 1, mainly focusing on 15 through 17, but we'll read the entirety of this section, 15 through 20. This is God's holy word. Hear it now. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. May he bless the reading and hearing of it this evening. Amen. And so we see here in our text, verses 15 through 17, that Christ is the preeminent Lord of creation. And we see that in four different ways this evening. We see it in that Christ is first over creation. Secondly, that Christ is the source of creation. Third, that Christ is before creation. And fourth and finally, that Christ is the sustainer of creation. And so the first way in which we're told here that Christ is preeminent over creation is that he is truly over creation. Look with me at verse 15 where we're told that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We're given two aspects here in which he is over creation. He is, on the one hand, the image of the invisible God, and on the other hand, he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, hopefully, and I say hopefully, I I trust that this is true of all of us here, obviously. Uh, 
Only talking of those that aren't gathered, absolutely. But hopefully we know that the Word teaches that we cannot see God. That we cannot see God. Our, our, our shorter catechism rightly states that God is a spirit. He's a spirit. And even the children's catechism, you got to love the children's catechism. Sometimes it fills it out in some of these areas, I think even a little better than our shorter at times. Uh, even the shorter catechism gives us this helpful question. Can you see God? Uh, to which hopefully we all know the answer. No, I cannot see God, but he sees me. The Father and the Spirit, you can't see them. Why? Simply put, because they have no form to see. This seems simple, but I think of myself for, uh, I was saved at 13 years old, and for uh, the majority of that time spent uh, as a saved Christian, I did not understand this. And I don't think that the majority of Christians understand this. Uh, most often when we think of God, we have a very wrong, uh, arguably a second commandment violation going on in our head of, of, of this almost cartoonish uh, grandfather sitting on a throne. This is unbiblical. Uh, toss it aside. Throw it in the wastebasket. It's not biblical. The Father has no form. The Spirit has no form. In fact, God's Word tells us as much in John 1.18. Uh, I love it when God's Word is simple and straightforward. Uh, no one has ever seen God. Love it. It doesn't get any more simple than that. But here, here we're told something that seems to add some confusion to that. Because here we're told that Jesus Christ is the image of that invisible God. We're told here that there is a sense in which, a real sense in which Jesus reveals God to us. He makes him known. Again, in John 1.18, if we read the entirety of that verse, it tells us no one has ever seen God. But the only God who is at the Father's side, now who are we talking about? And not the Father, not the Spirit, but the Son. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus, He has made Him known. And so Paul tells us here that He is the image of the invisible God. And there's much more being conveyed than what we get in Genesis 1.27 when we're told that you and I are made in the image of God. That's there but it goes well beyond that aspect. Uh, when we're told that we're made in the image of God, uh, it's simply stating that there's something about our nature, the qualities of a human being that's different than animals. As our catechism puts it, that we're made in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, that God has given us dominion over the creatures. That is true as well of Christ, but there's much more at play here. It's more than that. You know, people tell me every time it happened this morning, uh, not once, but twice, uh, people tell me every time these days when I go somewhere, even when I'm not with Liam, that he looks identical to me. Uh, even sometimes to make Carly, I think, in an effort to help her not feel left out, they'll, they'll say to Carly, uh, this happened just last week, uh, they'll go up to her and they'll say, well, you know, he resembles you, but that boy's the spitting image of his dad. Uh, Liam looks like me, and, and people tell us all the time. When Paul tells us here that Jesus is the image of his Father, that he's the image of, his, of the invisible God, he's saying that, but he's saying a whole lot more than that. Jesus Christ, as we read in Hebrews 1.3, is the express image of the Father's person. Or, or as another translation will render it, the, the ESV, I, I like how the ESV puts this, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature, it's the picture there of when they would stamp an image such as of Caesar on a coin. They lined it up and they had to make sure that it was an exact imprint, an exact image. 
In John 14, 9, Jesus himself tells us that whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so consider this, brothers. We should be clear on this, sisters, that everything that we can say of God, we can say of Jesus. Everything God is, Jesus is. Yet at the same time, not confounding the persons. He is the image of the invisible God. But we're told here also that he's the firstborn of all creation. And what a misunderstood verse this has been down through the ages. Now, this is not saying that Jesus is the first among others of the same kind. That he is the first chronologically in a line with others that will chronologically follow after him. This is not the scriptures telling us that Jesus is the first creature. Many have understood it to mean exactly that and they're dead wrong. That would, in effect, go completely against what Paul's going to tell us in a moment, that he is creator himself. No, the scriptures here isn't speaking in, they aren't speaking in a chronological sense. But rather, they're saying that Jesus is the firstborn of creation in priority. First in rank, first in standing, first in majesty. Uh, to help make this clear, we could consider the Psalms. A number of which, but particularly Psalm 89. Where in verse 27, we find God saying that he will one day make one of David's descendants, quote, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. We find there in Psalm 89, verse 27, God foretelling a, a, a son in David's lineage that would come that would be the firstborn of kings. Now, some common sense seems to be put at work here. Clearly, when they call him the firstborn of kings, God's not saying that that descendant will be the first ever king. There's been plenty of kings. There were already a number of kings in, in David's day. So the scriptures must be conveying firstborn in another sense. It's implying preeminence, one of rank, one of standing and majesty. And so far from it implying that Jesus is a creature, it's actually signifying the opposite. That Christ has absolute and total sovereign dominion over every creature. That he is the Lord of everything in existence. And so first we see that Christ is the preeminent Lord of creation in that Christ is over creation. But secondly, we see in verse 16 that Christ is also the source of creation. He's the source of creation. Look with me there at verse 16. We read that by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Paul's trying to get a point across here. We could say, etc., etc., etc. All things were created through him and for him. And so Jesus is so far from being himself a creature, as some would misunderstand the previous verse, that we read here that he is, by all accounts and purposes, the one and only creator God. We read here Paul making clear and simple as he can for us that Jesus Christ is creator of everything. He is the source of everything. It is Jesus who created all things out of nothing, ex nihilo, from the smallest atom to the highest angel in heaven. Jesus made the light, the sky, the land, the seas, the plants and the trees. Jesus made the sun, the moon, and the stars. It is Jesus that made every creature that lives therein, including you and me. It's Jesus who created time and space 
and everything that we find in them. It is Jesus who is the creator God. And this isn't unique to just Paul, not by any means. We read likewise in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 3, that of Jesus, that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Are you getting the idea? All of it, everything, no exceptions. Consider, Jesus, we're told in John 1, is the Word of God. And what is it that we're told in Genesis chapter 1 that God created everything with? His Word. And so contrary to what the cults and false teachers of our day, such as Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, and even Muslims, if you really consider it, would claim that Jesus is simply a God. They would claim that He is simply the first created being among many. The clear teaching of God's Word is that Jesus is God Himself, the one and only God, the Creator of everything in existence. And so we can think of it this way. Jesus is not simply the first domino in a row of other dominoes. No, Jesus is the one who created all the dominoes. Jesus is the one that by His hand carefully sat in place every single one of the dominoes in the place in which they would be sat. And it is Jesus who, if He determines to do so, will knock down every last one of those dominoes. Jesus is the Lord of creation, the Creator God Himself. We need to be clear on this. We need to understand this. That all things were created by Jesus. And not only that, they were created for Him. We think of questions. Questions that many ask. Questions that many ponder. Why are you and I here? I don't mean here at New Covenant. Hopefully you have good reasons for that. But why are we here in general? Why are we on earth? Why are we born? Why does any of this exist in the first place? Many ponder that question. I personally have friends that I grew up with uh, that have fallen into depression, into philosophies such as uh, nihilism, over pondering exactly this question of what's the point? Why is any of this here? Why am I here? What's the point to all of it? We have the blessing, brothers and sisters, of not having to wonder. God's Word tells us the answer, that it's all for Jesus. Every ounce, every aspect, every dot and tittle is for King Jesus, for His praise and for His glory. What is the chief end of man? And we also might add, of the whole of creation. Is it not to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever? Matthew Henry writes and says, Being created by Him, they were created for Him. Being made by His power, they were made according to His pleasure and for His praise. He, Jesus, is the end as well as the cause of all things. And so we see that Christ is the preeminent Lord of creation and that first, Christ is over creation. Secondly, that He is the source of creation. And third, that Christ is before creation. He is before creation. Look with me at verse 17 where Paul tells us that He is before all things. He is before all things. Jesus, God the Son, existed before everything. He never had a beginning, and He will never have an end. He is immortal. He is co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. He is the pre-existent Lord. He existed long before the virgin that gave birth to Him. And not only that, He existed long before time itself began. 
Before time began, God the Son, Jesus Christ, was there. There was never a time where the Father was, to use good confessional creedal language, there was never a time where the Father was that the Son was not. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John tells us in chapter 1, verse 1 of his Gospel. This might seem clear to us, and I would, I would assume that we're all on the same page about this here, but it hasn't always been clear. It hasn't always been understood broadly in the church. In fact, one of the oldest ancient heresies and heretics in the church was a man named Arius. Arius held that, he would say that while Jesus is similar to the Father, he's not the same. That while he's of a similar substance, he's not of the same substance. Arius, much like his theological descendants, the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, because if you didn't know it, that's all those groups are. They're just the theological offshoots of a heresy that was fixed and solved and should have been buried in the ground thousands of years ago. He, much like the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses today, argued that Jesus, while the first created being, while the most important created being, was still a created being. He was not the creator God himself, Arius held. One of Arius's catchphrases that he liked to say all the time was, quote, there was when he was not. He would say there was when he was not. Basically, you see what Arius was teaching, that there was a time where God the Father existed. There was a time where time existed that Jesus did not. It didn't matter how early he came into the picture. There was a time where Jesus was not, according to Arius. But Paul, along with the rest of God's word, tells us the polar opposite. The polar opposite. There was never a time where the Father was that the Son was not. They are co-eternal. They share one substance, though being different persons. Having both always existed from before time began, from eternity past and on into eternity future. Jesus said this of himself, and we sang this earlier in one of our hymns. He said, before Abraham was... I am. Don't take for granted that this is something that everyone in the church in America knows and understands because I can promise you it's not. Not only do we find many people having an understanding that Jesus, the God of the New Testament, is different than the God of the Old Testament. Uh, we have many that, though they might not say that, would, would not understand that not only is he not a different God than the God of the Old Testament, but that the God that we read of in the Old Testament is this God. When Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, Jesus is professing of himself that he is the eternal. He is the immortal. He is the self-existent creator God himself. Consider that Jesus is the I am who I am that came before Moses. Jesus is the I am. Jesus is the creator God. This is crucial that we understand this, that we're clear on this. We don't just need to assume that everyone in the Protestant evangelical church is on the same page because I can promise you from personal experience, they're not. Uh, years ago, it has to be five, six, seven years ago now, I was having a conversation uh, with a young lady, a, a college student in her junior year at Mississippi College, uh, a Christian studies major who I think it's worth noting, was the daughter of a local Protestant evangelical pastor herself. I was teaching some of these similar things on Christ from John 1. We were going through a sermon series. And the more I taught, 
uh, the more I could see the confusion and concern begin to grow on her face. Uh, whether you realize it or not, pastors, uh, we, we go a little bit based off of what we see on your faces out there, right? If it looks like you're getting it, we're good and we keep rolling. If it looks like most of you are confused, might have to repeat it a little bit. And I was getting a lot of the second one from this young lady. Uh, the more I spoke, the more I tried to clarify, the more it just looked like she, she wasn't getting what I was putting down. And so ordinarily, we save the questions for the end of the Bible study, but you know, when someone has their hand up for 20 minutes of it, uh, you just have to concede and realize it'll help everybody else just to give her a minute. And, and so I asked her, you know, what, what's the issue, what's the question, at which point she conveyed to me. Now, now remember, junior Christian studies major at a Southern Baptist institution, right? This isn't a heretical school. It might not be Presbyterian, but right, these are Christians, Christian professors, the daughter of a local Protestant evangelical pastor. She conveyed to me at this point, with a face that looked like she was about to explode from concern, that she had always, her entire life, thought that Jesus didn't come into the picture until 2,000 years ago. She genuinely had never been told, or at least, you know, benefit of the doubt, maybe had been told and didn't understand, but had never understood, she did not know, genuinely did not understand, that Jesus existed prior to his incarnation. We have to be clear on this. The church addressed this early on and has addressed it in different shades and different colors and different flavors throughout our history. And so we need to be on the same page. That Christ is the preeminent Lord of creation. And that first, Christ is over creation. Secondly, he is the source of creation. Third, before creation. And fourth and finally in conclusion, that he is the sustainer of creation. He is the sustainer of creation. Look with me again at verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the creator of everything, and he is the sustainer of everything. He's over creation, the source of creation, before creation. But he is also the one who currently Right now, as we speak, as we breathe, as we sit here in this room, he is the one that sustains every atom of it. But why does the world keep spinning? Why does your heart right now keep pumping? Why does the sun consistently, day in and day out, keep rising and keep setting? Why do the tides consistently come in and go out? Why do you live and move and have your being? It is because Christ sustains it all. At every moment, in every hour, of every second, He is the one who upholds you. He is the one who sustains it. He is the one who keeps those gears oiled and, and turning. Hebrews 1.3, we read, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Jesus did not just create everything. He is the one that holds it together. He did not just create everything and then step back and determine to watch it all play out. That's called deism, and it's not the faith of the Bible. It's not the faith of the Scriptures. And Jesus not only created everything, but He is actively, right now, and at every moment, holding it all together, keeping it all in motion. And so in a real sense, we need to understand, He didn't just create and step back and put the laws of nature, as we like to call them, into motion and say, let, you know, we're going to let you do your thing. Jesus, 
if he were to, for a moment, pull back his sustaining hand, for even a moment, it would all fall apart. It would all cease. Matthew Henry, again, he he puts it this way. Speaking of creation, he says, they not only subsist in their beings, but consist in their order and dependence. He, Jesus, not only created them all at first, but it is by the word of his power that they are still being upheld. The whole creation is kept together by the power of the Son of God and made to consist in its proper frame. It is reserved from disbanding and running into confusion. Creation coheres in Christ. Creation coheres in Christ at every single moment that passes. This is why, brothers and sisters, this is why with only a touch or a word, sickness and demons and even death would flee from him. This is why the winds and the waves obeyed him. It wasn't because he was a skilled orator. It wasn't because he was a great rabbi or or a theologian or even a good prophet. It is because he is their creator and he is their sustainer. And so we see from God's word that Christ is preeminent as Lord of creation. He is over it. He is the source of it. He is before it. And he is the one who right now sustains it. And so what do we do with this Christ? What do we do with one like this? We're only given one word, one option that makes sense. It is to bow down before him, as prostrate as we can get in worship and adoration and praise. And to go forth with this knowledge, living a life in obedience and submission and service to the one who is preeminent over every breath that fills our lungs. Would you pray with me right now as we have a chance to do that together as a body? Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given us in it everything we need for life and for godliness. We thank you that it is our rule and our standard that in a culture uh, that doesn't know its head from its tail, uh, in a culture that doesn't know the difference from a boy or a girl, let alone the difference from right or wrong, we thank you that we have... Uh, this foundation in Christ and His Word, that it is never changing, that right is right and wrong is wrong and good is good and bad is bad and that You have given us the blueprints for it right here. Father, we praise You for Your grace and Your mercy that You show us in that. That most of us have not one but several copies of this Word on ourselves at home, on our phone and everywhere we go. Father, we thank you now for this word that we've heard here tonight. We pray that as we go on into our week that you would help us. Help us not to forget it. Help us to, as Mary did, to treasure these things up in our heart. Father, help us to commit them to memory. And help us to live them out, Lord. That in our jobs, in our schooling, in our learnings, in our comings and goings, in our recreations, and in our rest, and everything else that we do. Father, help us to live lives that show forth to everyone we come into contact with that we are living a life in obedience and into submission to the one who is over it all. Father, we pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.